This morning's Old Testament reading comes from the Psalm, chapter 123. Hear what God's Spirit is saying to the people. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. In the reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells the parable to to his disciples. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Lost my place. (laughs) Sorry. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents, see? I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, who had, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, Brian. Yesterday afternoon, I listened in on the radio to a talk given at the City Club of Cleveland by Sandra Pinalto, who is the CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. 
She was speaking on the current financial turmoil in this country and eventually went on to say this, that money provides a means for our exchange, but it is not the source of our wealth. Now, I was listening to this to try to get a little bit more insight on what's going on with our financial crisis, but suddenly this was beginning to sound a little bit biblical to me. She then said something that really struck me. She said, the foundation of any financial system is confidence. In other words, I believe she was saying that we have to improve our solvency so that trust among the markets can flourish. Now, I can promise you that this will not be a sermon explaining the downturn of the housing or the credit markets because I am in no way qualified to do that. But trust among the markets at its barest level must mean trust among the individuals running the markets. Trust is something we should talk about at church. I can tell you that after listening to her excellent talk on the history of our country's financial system over the past 150 years, Ms. Pinalto closed with this simple statement from one of our founding fathers, James Madison. He said, the circulation of confidence is more important than the circulation of money. I think God would agree. Will you pray with me? God of abundance, you speak to each one of us as you make us. We pause to feel the steady ground of your hope beneath us and feel the power of your life within us this morning. Let us listen intently, even if we can only dimly hear you. Receive our longing and our humility in this time together. Amen. So as a nation, we have now what psychologists would call a trust issue. Listen to some of the words that we currently hear almost every hour of every day in the news. Here we go. Bailout. Foreclosure. Shrinking assets. Dow dropping. Credit crisis. Bankruptcy. Am I cheering you up yet? Deficit, decline, unemployment, recession, depression, global meltdown. With these perilous issues and such language bombarding our senses day in and day out, it is no wonder that we become fearful of our status, fearful of what is coming next, fearful that our leaders may not be competent with our money, angry that we may lose our nest egg, angry at the risky behavior of those without our best interests at heart. We are in the midst of a national lesson about just how high the risk can be to put our investment in the hands of others. We hedge our bets and hope that fate will swing our way. We have faith or we trust that in the long run, we will have a good return on our investments. 
But as we all know, the higher risks we take, the greater we might fall. And so we fall now. We are a nation in need of a bailout, a psychological bailout. We need confidence, as James Madison said, to start circulating. The author of the Gospel of Matthew is in his own way offering a bailout of sorts to the Christians in his community. It's essential to understand that this author wrote the gospel sometime in the late 80s AD, at least 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And just as importantly, this was only a decade after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. To understand this context is critical because following Rome's destruction of the temple, the Matthean community were a people in turmoil, as was the entire Jewish community. The war with Rome had divided families and communities, and the shock of their ruined temple compelled Christians to complain, yes, to complain, that's not what I was going to say, to complain and proclaim with a new vigor the messiahship of Jesus, whose mission they believed at the time was tied up in that temple. But from the other side, Matthew's community was being accused by their fellow Jews of abandoning the Torah. They were frightened and they were angry. They were being flogged in the synagogues, dragged before tribunals. They feared for their lives. Conflicts with the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders put them between a rock and a hard place, as we say. It was a dangerous time, and many Christians were understandably starting to waver in their faith. So it is in these very years that the writer of Matthew put pen to paper and began to write what we know as the Gospel of Matthew today. He is calling on his community to hold on, to remember where they came from, to remember who they lived for and to give them hope that their struggle would not be in vain. And Matthew, more than any of the other three Gospels, has the harshest language about judgment and the importance of being ready. He often wrote that living compassionately has consequences, just as the lack of compassion does as well. He was trying to reassure his community that keeping their faith would have its own reward. Their lives were at risk. We can see why they needed faith in order to not fall away from Christ. So Matthew was beginning to reinterpret for the people of God's kingdom what, might, what life might be like in the kingdom in this life, rather than focus so much on the return of Christ for that indeed was seeming less and less imminent. These people needed more than the theological correctness of their faith to keep going. They had been waiting some 60 years post-resurrection. But Matthew admonished that their waiting was not to be passive. He calls them over and over again throughout his gospel to be active peacemakers to be merciful, 
He calls them to live counter to their culture, but to claim their heritage, and most of all, to let love, not fear, guide them. So it is with this backdrop that the curtain on today's parable goes up. In it, Jesus tells the story of the talents in the middle of three parables in Matthew known as the judgment parables. You heard the first last week when Karen preached about the ten bridesmaids. As we begin to look close at how today's story unfolds, it's, remember, it's important to remember that a parable is a story within a story. Often Jesus' disciples asked him, What is the kingdom of God like? And in answer, Jesus usually told a parable or a story that put the questioner in the kingdom right then and there. He tried to create a picture with characters and situations that would have been very familiar to those listening. Always the consummate teacher and preacher, Jesus put it in the context of their real lives. But still, the disciples did not often understand the parables. And like them, we struggle with them today. Parables are usually open-ended, meant to tease the mind into active thought. They are formative more than directive. And there are many interpretations within one parable. We're meant to go back to them again and again over the course of our lives so that they will reveal different meanings to us at different times. Jesus is intentional about not giving these stories a moral There are many times when Jesus tells us outright what life in God is like. But with the parables, he asks us to discover it for ourselves. We're meant to jump inside them and interpret what they might mean for us. Jesus is trying to get us, the disciples, everyone to use our own brains. And in this way, the parable itself is a gift. The story that Brian read for us this morning talks of a master giving a certain number of talents to three of his servants before he leaves for a long journey. A talent in these times was a sum of money. In today's world, a talent would be worth around $300,000. So that five-talent servant would have been investing more than a million dollars for his master in today's world. Many of Jesus' parables reflected economic practices of the day and how they affected people. People would know what you could do with such a sum. Money was powerful then, too. It is a story about a wealthy landowner who entrusts his wealth to his servants to do business with it. As we have heard, he gives the first servant five talents, the next two, and the last servant receives one talent. Note that he does not tell them what to do with the talents. No specific instructions. He just gave them the money and went away. We then learn what each of the three servants chose to do with their bits. The first two invested and doubled their amounts. The third went and dug a hole and hid the money away for safekeeping. At least he wouldn't lose any of it with risky investments. We learn later in the story that the third servant was afraid of messing up what the master had given. 
Listen again to what this servant says to the master upon his return. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. We do not know for sure what to make of the servant's understanding of the master as harsh. Some scholars suggest that the master in this case does not represent God, but rather an actual wealthy landowner that might react in this very way if a servant had not invested his money well. So in this way, the story becomes an example of how God's love is so very different from the harshness of a human master. Other scholars theorize that our author portrays the master as punishing the one who waits idly by for God's return, rather than actively living out God's grace in the world. But again, this is the beauty and intent of the parable, to let us wrestle with its content and see how it speaks to us. I am caught by how the servant who refused to invest the money openly identifies his fear. I was afraid, he said. I was afraid. The master, he felt, was reaping where he had not sown and gathering harvest that was not originally his. Doesn't this sound like a good description of hard business practice in any day? It may be. But it is a practice that instills fear in us. We don't need to look beyond today's headlines to know that the fear that lenders, excuse me, to know the fear that lenders rely on borrowed money can create. This servant like us is in a crisis of confidence. But if this parable is about the kingdom of God, then what is it? that God gives us. Well, let's think of the basics of our faith, that God has created the world and given us life, that God loves us and forgives us, that God shows us mercy and compassion, that God's grace is abundant. Put in these terms, the third servant in his fear has taken grace and forgiveness for himself and buried it in the ground to keep it safe. At least he won't lose it for himself. But what happens when the landowner returns? Well, the landowner is pleased with the first two servants and rewards them for their work by giving them more. But upon hearing the third servant's results, The master gets angry. Ironically, the very thing the servant was afraid of. But why is he angry? After all, as we noted earlier, he did not say what was to be done with the money before he left. He just left. Perhaps that is the very point. He hadn't asked them for a particular return on the money He simply entrusted the funds and hoped that they would do business with what had been given to them. 
Jesus is using this story about the way money can grow or not to tell us something about living in the kingdom of God. It is less about money itself and more about how our faith lives can grow or not. What fears keep us from growing? Well, how about these? What if we cannot live up to what's been given to us? What if we aren't good enough, aren't strong enough to live up to God's perfect gift? In the Greek, the word for faith is pistis, translated in this context to mean trust. So in this sense, God has given us the gifts of faith for our enjoyment, but also because we have a job to do with these gifts. Dare to imagine that God hopes we will take some risks with the gifts like grace and forgiveness. Dare to believe that God is generous and expects us to be generous in return. We are in partnership with God in offering mercy, grace, forgiveness, and compassion to this world. The community Matthew was speaking to lived in uncertain times when their identity as a people and as a faith and as a nation were in question. The story we heard today was written for them and told out loud to them in a community not unlike our gathering here this morning. The story told them not to be afraid to do business with God's gifts. The story told them to be reckless with God's love. Writer and theologian Robert Capon says this of the parable that we heard. We put ourselves out of reach of God's reconciliation by keeping the gifts as events to be remembered or ideas or doctrines to be kept intact. Matthew tells us, though, that through Jesus' parables, we are to quit making God into the image of our own fear, to quit trying to protect our little piece of God's faith.